0: again to the, the Bad Quaker Podcast, where liberty is our mission. Today is Wednesday, May 1st, 2013, and this is podcast number 309. And let's get the announcements out of the way right off the bat. We have Porkfest 10, June 17th through 23rd at the Rogers Campground, Lancaster, New Hampshire. Um, now, we just got notice today that uh, that the campground is filling up and that the only spots left in the campground are rv uh, spots all the tent spots and all the cabins have been filled so if you're going to go to pork fest you really need to get those reservations uh, taken care of pretty quickly because it is filling up and it's going it's looking like it's going to be the biggest pork fest ever uh, also, again, want to mention the first annual Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest hosted by the Michigan Peace and Liberty Coalition. It's going to be at the Brighton uh, Recreation Area in Brighton, Michigan. And my wife and I are planning on being there. It's going to be Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, August 17th, 18th, and 19th. And it's going to be just a fun family get-together with camping and, and things like that. Just uh, really informal and a lot of fun. And I want to give a correction. I had mentioned the the top fifty podcasts, and I had said that uh, we have a list on the forum, which we do. That's true. Uh, the problem is it's on a part of the forum that's not available to the public, so you have to make an identity to to uh, to check in and see it. So I think what I'm going to do, if I can remember to do this today, I've got so many things going today, but if I can remember to do this today, I will uh, go on the on the forum. And peel off that list of 50 podcasts and make a separate uh, uh, posting where the public can see it, so that everybody, even if you don't have a, a forum, uh, uh, you know, a, a forum account, you can still see it. Now, uh, having a forum account is really easy. It's free. It's it's super simple. You just hit the the login thing and you just create a put a name in there, any name you want. Make one up. Use your real name. Whatever doesn't matter. Put in a password that's that you're gonna remember. And I believe the only security question it asks you is what the name of the primary uh podcaster is. That would be me, Ben Stone. And the reason we ask that is to keep spammers out, because uh, you know, there's just a ton of people out there who go from forum to forum making accounts, and then they just put in tons and tons of spam in there and, and it that nobody likes to see that. That's very rude. So that's our attempt to keep spammers out, and so far it's worked pretty good. I've I've watched as, oh, I don't know, dozens of people, spammers, have tried to log on and couldn't do it. And I can tell it's spammers because you can see their uh, their IP address and their websites like uh, Stop Forum Spam and, and websites like that, The Honeypot Project and others, where you can check their IP address with known spammers. And so I've spotted dozens and dozens of, of known spammers attempting to set up an, a, a profile on the forum and they haven't been able to do that because of that one simple question: Who is the primary uh, podcaster? Okay. Well, anyway, that's so. That's I guess that's a little commercial for the forum too. But uh, it costs nothing. You can set up a, an account on the forum, and you can look around. You can en- engage and chat with the other, uh, you know, uh, with the other people who have um, uh, set up their their identities on the forum. And there's you know there's sharing of knowledge and stuff, and there are parts of the forum that can't be seen by the public and then there's also a uh, a paying section of the forum which is uh, you know you really don't get that many benefits the whole purpose of the paying section is just to support the forum and support the costs and of the podcast and things like that i and i think it's like either three or four dollars a month to join or something like twenty dollars a year if i recall or something like that so okay so that's a commercial for the for the forum for the Bad Quaker Forum, and you can get to that by going to badquaker.com, and on the right-hand side, in the upper right-hand side, there's just a button there that says the Bad Quaker Forum. You can hit that button and get right over to it. Okay, now uh, to get to the topic today, there's something that, um, there there was a thing that I observed when we were down in Alabama that kind of caught my eye, and I thought, well, isn't that interesting? Um, and what it is, you know i've I've talked lots of times about how much I like to watch animals and watch to to observe their nature and see how their behavior is and and the unique uh, characteristics of uh, of each animal's behavior to try to determine, you know, uh, my goal in it is to determine is it possible to observe what true human nature is and is it possible to divide? Um, human nature from learned behavior, the things that we're taught either from our environment or from, you know, from parents or from society, from governments, from schools and all this kind of stuff, all those um, behavioral norms that were expected. What is there a difference between true human nature and those things that are put upon us uh, in a sense uh, outside of nature or in an unnatural way? And, you know, I've I've done a lot of observe, uh, observations of animals with that intent to see if I can determine what kind of real laws of nature govern each different type of animal and then uh, see how that applies to humans. So one of the things that I've observed here where I live in Ohio, uh, it, very common here are the... Um, uh, the robins. We have robins all over Ohio, and they're and they're very, uh, you know, very prominent. And um, the the robins within w- where we live in in you know suburbia, um, they have adapted really well to the to the the fact that human beings have yards. We have large grass yards, and you get into suburbia, and you just have. Um, you know, yards and yards and yards and yards of grass. And the robins here have adapted to that in the sense that they're extremely territorial, and one robin basically will take one yard. Now, sometimes that's not a hard rule. It's according to how the, the property lines are defined uh, in, the, in the different yards. So, for example, some yards here in the neighborhood where we live in, there's no real distinction from one person's yard to the next person's yard. There's no fence. There's no obvious property line. It's just an area where one person mows in one direction and one person mows in the other direction, and, and then and the two property owners know where the property line is, so that's the, the property line. Well, in a situation like that, you know, sometimes you'll have a robin that will cross over and cover two yards or a yard and a half. But basically, the, the the general pattern is one robin per yard. And these typically are the male uh, robins. And then the male robin will attempt to attract a female through song and dance and so forth, and try to get a female to come to his property. And then that, they'll begin building a nest and, and going through the mating procedures. And, uh, and so that's kind of the pattern that you see here in Ohio in suburbia where I live. Well, when we went to, uh, over the winter, when we, uh, my wife and I went down to South Alabama and hung around throughout the South and drove all around and and had a lot of of fun and everything, uh, most of that time we we were in South Alabama. And what we observed down there with robins was very different than what we saw up here. First off, the quantity of robins was dramatically higher. Uh, Up here, like I say, you see one or two robins together and that's it uh if, the, if you see two robins together it's either two males fighting over territory or it's um a male and a female and uh and, and that's basically it um but what we were seeing down there was actual flocks of robins robins behaving much like the way um uh, starlings do uh, up here in Ohio it's not not to that extent because there are there are just thick thick giant uh flocks of starlings But I would say more like uh, maybe more like um, uh, maybe more like sparrows, the way sparrows do in Ohio. Sparrows will be in flocks of anywhere from five or ten up to maybe two or three hundred, maybe five hundred at the most that I've seen. And so, uh, and that's how we were seeing the robins in Alabama. And I was looking at that and I thought, how strange that this same animal behaves so much differently in Alabama than it does in Ohio. And so I started observing this difference to see what uh, what what caused this difference. And I could see that uh, in Alabama, there is a far greater abundance of food sources for the Robins, whereas in Ohio, in the neighborhoods, uh, you know, in suburbia, I, I believe, and I can't prove this, but I believe because of there's such a high rate of chemical spraying in people's yards, you know, if you just take the... The neighborhood that I'm in here, just take the street that I'm on. I would say probably I would say probably twenty to thirty percent of the houses have professional lawn companies that come in and spray their lawns for them uh, close to once a month. Well, you know, that can't be good for the bird population, especially birds like robins that eat primarily insects out of the yard. So either what we're doing here is we're either lowering the insect population to where um, we're you know we're forcing a um, uh, we're forcing the robins to uh, to section off areas uh, you know uh, uh, territorial areas, whereas in the forests and in the in the uh, the areas that I was looking at. In Alabama, there was no spraying like that because it was out in the country, and there was, you know, there were forests right there, and then there's a big grassy area, and it wasn't maintained like a like a person's yard is. It was just, uh, you know, more wild areas. So, um, so there was probably a greater abundance of insects um, there in areas like that where there was no spraying. So I'm assuming that since there were since there's no spraying and since it's, uh, there, it's Alabama and there's an abundance of insects, you know, in Ohio, we have hard winters that kill off the insects or drive them deep underground uh, every winter. But in Alabama, they don't have that advantage. Um, so I'm assuming that the higher level, the, the the higher amounts of insects means there's more food, there's less competition, there's less need for uh, for the robins to divide up into territories, and so because of the abundance that's there, it eliminates the the necessity for territories. So the robins are not territorial the way they are uh, up here in Ohio, and and I suppose you could test this by going to uh, you know somewhere like the suburbs of um, of a, a like Birmingham or somewhere, and observing the robins there. You could you could test my theory by doing that, but my whole point in that is that. Sometimes what appears to be natural or what appears to be the nature of an animal, is really a learned behavior. It's, it's uh, some form of adaptation to the environment that they're being uh, that that they're dealing with, and so they have learned this behavior uh, as an uh, as a response, as an adapt as an adaptation to what they're facing. It's not necessarily their nature. It's uh, it's how they're reacting to what's in, uh, interrupted their nature. So I believe that's probably what I was looking at with the Robins and why the Robins in South Alabama that I was observing flock and have no uh, obvious territorial ownership, whereas the ones in the neighborhood where I live in Ohio have very well-defined uh, property, uh, uh, property rights and they and they enforce those property rights very vigorously with other Robins. So now, this gets me thinking about humans, and I say, "Well, okay, so there are certainly there are things in in our lives that uh, where humans have adjusted themselves and adapted themselves to overcome oddities that we face that are not natural to us so um, so the more we can discover these things and figure out uh, what is human nature, what is natural to us, and what is it that we have um, altered our nature in order to adapt to different settings and different situations. And last week, I uh, I quoted and read from an article where um, where the writer was talking about hierarchy and how hierarchy actually is doomed to collapse at some point. And also, someone uh, a couple days ago, a listener, shared a, a YouTube video with me that was real. I really enjoyed this YouTube video, and it's titled... Why, and, and I'll put a link in today's show notes to this, by the way, because it's really a good YouTube video. It's about, I think, nine or ten minutes long, uh, but it's a really good video. And it's titled, Why Hierarchy Creates a Destructive Force Within the Human Psyche. And uh, what basically happens in this video is this, this is a re, it's done about a researcher who has been observing baboons in nature for, you know, uh, 20, 30 years, something like that, maybe 40 years. I'm not sure. I think he says in the, in the video, but, uh, either way, um, he, if I recall, mm, I can't remember the exact prize that he won, but he, he won great recognition for his studies because what he was able to do was um, he was taking blood samples and he was observing the baboon, the, this, this troop of baboons, well, several troops of baboons, but, um, but he was observing troops of baboons and he was measuring their stress levels and uh, taking blood samples from them and so forth and, and uh, watching them and diagnosing them uh, medically and watching their behavior. And what he found out was that um, the baboon's stress level Again, he was using blood samples and so forth. And he figured out that the baboon's stress level was directly related to that baboon's position in the ranking system of the baboons, in the hierarchy of the baboons. So in other words, a baboon that was, uh, let's say, smaller and weaker, uh, lower on the hierarchical level to other baboons, um, he had a really high stress level. But baboons, uh, like alpha males or very you know, uh, baboons that were very high on the hierarchy level of the troop, had much lower stress levels. And um, he found that the lower-ranking baboons with the higher stress levels also had high blood pressure, increased heart rates. They had um, uh, stun, stunted uh, uh, immune systems. Um, they were they had a higher depression rate. They had a lower reproduction rate and they lived a shorter lifespan than the higher ranking baboons that had the lower stress levels and they had, uh, uh, you know, longer, uh, they lived longer lives. They had lower uh, blood pressure. Uh, they had higher uh, reproductive rates. And because, and these things are somewhat cause and effect because uh, since the dominant um, Baboons lived longer and had uh, increased um, uh, reproductive rates. You know, even compared to what what not not only because their ranking position allowed them more opportunities at reproduction, but also because they were uh, they tended to be more fertile. Uh, The higher the higher ranking baboons tended to be more fertile, and uh, again because of the lower stress level, and so because the higher ranking baboons had a much uh, greater chance of reproduction and they had, and they were more fertile in their attempts at reproduction and they lived longer. Then this whole system maintained the hierarchy of the dominant uh, uh, baboons. And so the researcher followed these, these different baboon troops over a long period of time and he measured them and he's been doing this for years and years and years. And he has, uh, just assumed that what he was observing was the nature of the baboons. But he was wrong in this. He was not observing the nature of the baboons. He was observing the baboons that had adapted to a particular uh, set of circumstances. They they were um, the hierarchy that he was seeing and the, the stress levels and the way the stress levels interacted with the troops of baboons um, was not necessarily the nature of the baboons. It was the baboons' way of adjusting to their environment and their circumstances. Uh, He had one troop, and this is what caused him to discover this. He had one troop that discovered a human uh, garbage dump, you know, a place where um, some kind of a a retreat, a nature retreat of some kind that humans were, uh, were utilizing, and they were throwing their garbage out and they weren't careful with it, and they had put their their trash dump in a way that the baboons were able to get to it. And uh, of course, this you know this is tasty for the baboons. They're like, cool, we got human garbage to dig through. So as the baboons found this uh, this trash dump, of course the higher ranking baboons. Got to uh, eat first, and they got to eat the choice stuff that they found there because you know, they're bigger and stronger, and they were very violent, and they would throw the lesser ones out of the way. Oh, I should mention that. This is one of the aspects of the hierarchy of the baboon tr- uh, troops that this researcher had observed. Uh, they were very violent. this this hierarchy among the baboons created uh, the 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 uh, the opportunity, like if um, the way he put it, If one higher-ranking baboon was having a bad day for whatever reason, his first reaction is to just grab a lesser baboon and just beat the crap out of him, bite him, chase him, you know, uh, hurt him. Um, And then that baboon, in turn, would find a baboon that was a slightly lower ranking uh, in the order, in the hierarchy, and he would, you know, just beat that uh, baboon up. And then that baboon would find a lower ranking, and, and the cycle continued like that. So that the lower ranking baboons were always under threat of violence by the higher ranking baboons, and this is again, he just assumed this was the nature of the baboons, but it wasn 't um, they that they were reacting to their environment and they were reacting to this hierarchy that their that their troops were structured as so um, so they got into this uh, garbage dump, and a bunch of the old meat that was in the trash there was tainted. With uh, tuberculosis, uh, uh, it had been exposed to t- tuberculosis. So um, the higher ranking, mostly male higher ranking baboons uh, took the used their authority and the and violence to come in and take all the choice uh, parts of the garbage, which were, you know the the rotting meat that was uh, that was carrying the tuberculosis. So what unfortunately, you know what he observed was, that it just killed off the entire hierarchy of the whole baboon tribe. Just killed all, killed all of the uh, adult um, alpha males and all the beta males, all the all the higher ranking of the hierarchy. It killed them all off, and it only left the ones who had stayed back and who uh, weren't uh, didn't have the opportunity to go into the trash and, and get their fill. Um, so it just decapitated. The, uh, the leadership, so to speak, of the baboon troop. And, uh, the, and the researcher was, you know, he describes himself as being very upset about this when it happened. He was just devastated. He was very angry. And uh, so, you know, uh, I'll tell you what, when I come back from this break, I'm going to tell you what he observed, uh, how the troop reacted to having the entire hierarchy of the troop disrupted and having uh, all of the leadership of the troop removed stick with me i'll be right back do you have an amazon account if you don't let me encourage you to set one up Setting up an account is free and it's easy, and Amazon has great prices, and in most cases you can avoid paying sales tax. Plus, if you're careful and lump your purchases together, you can get free shipping. And Amazon has almost anything you can think of, plus it's safer and cheaper than driving all over town. When you buy stuff, if you follow the Amazon link at badquaker.com, Amazon will give Bad Quaker a tiny portion of the purchase. It won't cost you any extra, but you'll be supporting this podcast. Thank you. Okay, so I was talking about this um, This video about the baboons, so the entire um, the entire leadership, so to speak of the of the baboon troop uh, was wiped out by, by tuberculosis, and the only ones that survived it were the ones that didn't have uh, the the opportunity to go in and indulge in the human garbage that had that they had found so essentially this left. The reproducing females at a much higher rate, uh, uh, you know higher proportion of females uh, over males because most of the top ranking baboons based on you know their own strength and, and their aggressive abilities and so forth, most of the ones that died were males. So it, it took away uh, all those aggressive males and it left uh, only the younger males, the younger weaker males, and the lower ranking males that had a tendency not to be all that violent anyway. Uh, and so, you know, then he started observing the troop and he, he continued with his testing and he found the stress levels of everybody, of all the baboons, the stress levels had dropped dramatically. And by decapitating the troop, by taking all of the top, uh, aggressive males out of the troop completely in one fell swoop and a very quickly like that, he found that, um, that all of the baboons were calmer and healthier. And the troop itself was let, he didn't observe this, this where one baboon would be having a bad day, so he'd hunt up uh, another baboon that was lower on the rank and just beat him up for the fun of it. And then that baboon would in turn go and follow through with another lower ranking baboon, and that lower ranking baboon would find another lower ranking baboon. All that stopped um The excessive abuse of the females that he had observed with the with the uh, dominant males all of that stopped and he said that um the a young male baboon will have a tendency to leave its own uh, troop and go seek a new troop. so there was always this influx of new uh young male baboons into the troop, and he said after about six months or so. They would adapt to this new uh, non hierarchical form of uh, of baboon society, and rather than coming in and taking over and making a new uh, you know a new hierarchy with the new baboons uh, becoming in charge because as they came in, they were already facing a majority of baboons that wouldn 't tolerate that that had uh, that had lived without having that hierarchy for a while. Um, then then the other baboons wouldn't allow the the new baboons coming in to behave that way and so after about six months or so, the new baboon would either leave and go on to find you know someplace else where he could be violent or he would calm down and and adapt to the society uh to this non hierarchical society of baboons and that's kind of exactly what I was seeing with these robins you know um the, what what I could have misunderstood as being their nature, being very territorial like they are in my yard. And, uh, you know, their their mating procedures of of establishing a property and then luring a female to that property with dance and song and then getting her to stay on that property. And they, you know, then they build a nest and they mate and everything. That is a completely adapted behavior that they've learned from having people who have yards. and uh, And that provides for them uh, a shortage of insects to eat and these big large areas that are easy to identify where the property boundaries are so that so so the robins, much like these baboons, adapt, adapted to their environment and uh, were not necessarily showing what the nature of their species was they were showing what they what they had adapted to and uh, and again, this is important for humans in the sense that if we really can find out what our nature is, then we can see how we are reacting to certain negative inputs into our society. Now, when you when you think about these baboons and you think about how stress was interacting with the baboons, and it was actually you know uh, uh, the violence was creating the stress, and the stress was creating an opportunity. For the violence to continue. Now, uh, again, what I mean by that is that um, the violence would be there, this top-down hierarchical violence, and because of the violence was there, then it created these levels of stress, and the levels of stress were greater on the weakest in society, and 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 the stress was the lightest on the strongest, the ones who were creating the violence. So the strongest baboons were the least uh, were the least stressful. And, um, and therefore they reproduced the most, they lived longer and they were able to continue their, their dominance. So it was a self replicating process and humans very much, uh, are, are affected the same way by stress. The more stressful you are, the higher your blood pressure, the higher your, uh, you know, your stress related hormones goes up in your blood. Uh, just like with the baboons, um, you have a tendency to have higher blood pressure, higher, uh, lower, uh, um, um, Fertility rates lower, um, life expectancy—you uh, know—all those terrible things that stress does to us. Higher levels of depression, all that stuff that stress does to humans—it uh, it does just like it did with the baboons, and it—and it—it uh, shortens our life. It gives us a more miserable life uh, than we would have otherwise. So now we have to look and we start to say, "Well, okay, well, what's causing all this stress in in humans?" And if you think about you know, you think about uh, uh, all the levels of hierarchy that a human has to tolerate. You have bosses, you have cops, you have judges, you have parents, you have teachers, you have all these all these um, people that are in these positions of top-down authority. And all of that, every one of those uh, levels um, just creates more and more stress for each of us that are uh, on the next level down. And how do we react to it? Well, we have a tendency, just like the baboons, if you're getting snapped at all the time, you'll have a tendency to snap at other people. And you'll have a tendency to snap downward and not upward in the hierarchy. Um, the, the lower you are in the ranks, the more pressure that you're facing. And so this makes an environment where the people on the lowest levels in, in American society are often the most violent, uh, because they have to have some way of expressing all of that frustration, all of that anger, and all of that stress that's being pushed down onto them. and uh, thinking of this and thinking about how this how the hierarchy creates stress and pushes down on people, I think of celine's uh, the second law of uh, celine's of celine's laws. the second law says um, accurate communication. Is possible only in a non punishing situation, and I think I talked about this last week when I was talking about hierarchies and um, how it's it's really not easy to communicate clear information upward uh, through a hierarchy so for that reason, the hierarchy has a tendency to want to spy on everybody down below because they're not getting good information any other way it's kind of a it's kind of a natural result of having a hierarchy is that those on the higher end tend to want to uh, snoop into the business of everybody below them, because that's the only way that they get feedback that's not tainted, because any feedback that you try to push upward through a hierarchy, you're always pushing against somebody that's, uh, you know, that's uh, over you in that sense, and so you're never going to be totally honest with them. You're always going to try to appease them to some measure, and and so the all the information going upward is tainted, but all the information that the upper level gets through spying and through, you know, all the different avenues that uh, that the top-down management attempts to use, it's also tainted because it's, it's, it's obtained through, um, through means that are other than an equal communication. Um, so now I need to – I'm using this word hierarchy and uh, the article that I read last week, it just, it just dawned on me, was by Kevin Carson – Um, and he was talking about uh, uh, hierarchy. But I need to give some definitions here because we're using a word here, we're kicking this word hierarchy around without really having a clear definition as to what it is we're talking about. So you hear the word hierarchy and you think higher, like higher, like it's height, like elevation. But that's not where the word comes from. It's not like a vertical up and down structure. That's That's not what hierarchy is talking about. Uh, you can arrange books in a hierarchy and they can all be on the same bookshelf, uh, you know, in, in, on the same bookshelf in a line, uh, but yet they're in a hierarchy if you put them like A to A to Z or, you know, if they're numbered 1 through 10 or whatever like this, you know, uh, uh, volume 1, volume 2, volume 3, that's in a hierarchy, even though one is not at a higher ele- ele- elevation than the other. So the higher in hierarchy... Uh, is not, uh, you know, like up in the sky type higher. It is, uh, it actually comes from a, a, the Greek word that it comes from, um, a heros, uh, has to do with uh, almost like sacred, like, or, or holy. It literally means um, a heros, meaning it comes from the heavens. It's heavenly, it comes from the heavens, from the realm of God. Uh, it's not about height. Um, so the word hierarchy is, it literally means a holy order or a sacred order or a heavenly order, uh, because archy means order, see? Now, when we think about anarchy, a lot of people will tell you, oh, well, anarchy, that's where you don't have any laws. Well, we all know that that's not correct. Anarchy has nothing to do with law. The word anarchy doesn't even mean rulers. Uh, you see anarchists all the time saying anarchy, no rulers. That's not what that means. Anarchy—it's a- not antiarchy. It's anarchy, like animation, or or um, it, it literally means self-order, not not against law or no law. It's not anti-law. Uh, it's it's self ordered, just like hierarchy is heavenly ordered or holy ordered. Um, anarchy is self ordered. So now we start to understand these two words. It's not antiarchy, it's anarchy, self. Okay, so now you start to talk to someone and about this, and they're going to jump to the conclusion, well, you know, anarchy means, um, you know, you just want chaos. You want to reject law. Uh, you want people in the streets just fighting. You want people are going to kick down your door and take everything you have. And, and they come to all these uh, crazy conclusions like that. And I, I listen to that kind of thing. And, you know, I don't know how many times someone has said that to me. Someone that I've known for a long time, and that they have they have held their tongue and they've sort of sat on their opinion, and then in some burst of uh, of you know truthfulness that jumps out of their head, they'll say something like this to me. And I, the only thing I can think of is, now you've known me all this time. Do you really think that I'm the kind of person that wants violence in the streets? I mean, do you think that I that I have thought this through and I have decided, yeah. That'd be really good if there was just wild mayhem and chaos and violence in the streets, people turning over cars and setting things on fire. That'd be great, wouldn't it? You, you know, you've known me all these years. Do you really think I believe that? And and of course not. You know, of course they they uh, it it kind of it puts me on the defense when somebody says that to me because because it's it's an insult. It's like, really, you think that I'm I'm like, or do you think I'm that dumb? Do you think that I haven't thought this through at all? And then I'm just so dumb that I would say, oh, wow, I didn't think of that. Um, it's, it, uh, you know, with all the books and all of the the research that's been done and all of the, the philosophers who have gone through this and thought it through and talked about it, we're just going to reject all them as idiots. Because as it turns out, people are just going to run up and down the street, setting things on fire, kicking in doors, right? Well... But what's their nature? Is their nature to do that? Is that in their nature to do it? I think in certain circumstances, certain circumstances, the learned behavior of people will allow them to behave like that. But that doesn't mean that's part of their human nature. That means they have adapted and under certain circumstances, they react that way. But now, really, what is their nature? And other people say... You know that if you want uh, anarchy, that you're some kind of simpleton. You haven't really thought this through. That's the other half of this argument, and and you think you think that there are no bad people. You think that all people are good and they're just going to behave themselves with no laws. Well, again, anarchy doesn't mean no laws. It means it means self discipline and self-ruled and self-organized uh, and self-ordered. Well, if uh, if you're self-organized and you're self-ordered and someone uh, approaches you and they're not self-ordered and they're uh, attempting violence upon you, you're going to do something about it. You're not just going to sit there and say, boy, I just wish I had a government. This is happening because I don't have a government. Well, no, it's happening because that person that you're facing is aggressing upon you, and you can stop them. And as communities together, uh, and and we've seen this in anarchial communities uh, over and over where they have adapted and learned ways, sometimes very different than other anarchial societies, but they adapt and they learn ways to deal with the one-off um, person who decides to be violent or who can't uh, regulate themselves and can't order themselves. Well, societies adapt and figure out ways. Human beings adapt and figure out ways of dealing with, these, with, with situations like that. Um, you know and And oftentimes uh, a critic of anarchy will say something to the effect of well you can't show me you can't show me where this has ever worked well yeah um there it, we we can't let ourselves be led into uh losing that particular argument because there there are existing cases of anarchy uh of whole societies based on anarchy today existing today, and there have always been cases of societies existing in anarchy and um prior to there being you know the 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 existence of government itself we can only show any evidence of, at all of government going back something like uh what is it 9000 years or 11000 years something like that i can't i can't remember now uh, i would have to go back and listen to my own podcasts about uh about jericho but uh but prior to the prior to the city state of jericho we don't have any physical evidence of any uh, course of government in existence, so the vast bu- bulk of human history, all through the you know all through the Stone Age, all up into the Bronze Age, um, for many societies, specifically you know almost all of Northern Europe, well up into uh, uh, you know almost to modern times, some of of Europe um, were, were anarchical societies. Uh, large portions of Africa. Uh, Large portions of South America, North America, all the way up until the, essentially until the European invasion. uh, Almost all of North America was under anarchial societies that were very successful, were not horribly violent, that figured out things like property rights and figured out how to to manage things like crime and how to settle disputes. And, you know, uh, there's all kinds of examples that we have. Of anarchical societies functioning and functioning for thousands of years uh, without a government, without a coercive government, without the existence of the idea of the state. So we can't allow ourselves to give up that ground in the discussion and say, oh, you're right, we don't have a perfect utopian anarchy, therefore uh, I'm just you know I'm just a dreamer, it's just a dream. Well, we can't do that because the fact of the matter is Anarchy is the default setting for humans. It's our nature. That is our nature, and so now we start to say, "Well, well, then how is this hierarchy um, affecting the human, uh, the whole human condition? How is it that this existence of a hierarchy, being governments uh, and, and so forth, how is that affecting?" Um, the human. When we go back to the title of that of the video that I was talking about, the title is "Why a Hierarchy Creates a Destructive Force Within the Human Psyche." Well, um, living in a hierarchy is unnatural for humans. If you think about uh, think about animals in a zoo, and you go to a zoo, especially an old style zoo. Where you know the, the uh, confinements are fairly small, and the animals are fed a specific diet, and they just look horrible. They they don't. They're not happy. They're very often in, especially in the old style zoos, uh, the life expect expectancy in in a caged animal is very short. They don't get the kind of diet that they get in nature. Even even though you know all the central planning that the zoo uh, zookeepers attempt, they can't replicate nature. They can think, well, if we give them a diet of this, 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 and this, then they'll be healthy, but it doesn't work out. They can never quite replicate um, what that animal the the all the different things that the animal in, uh, uh, encounters in nature. Uh, so they can never really replicate it. So the animals in a zoo. Are never quite um, right because they're not in their natural setting and that's the same way with humans and what I was talking about with the low-ranking baboons had the higher stress levels they had high blood pressure they had increasing heart rates there you know there were immune uh, problems think of how many people nowadays have food allergies that we didn't see just a few years back or a few generations back uh, high depression levels um, there's, uh, beginning to see low reproductive rates in especially in the West and especially, you know, all this stuff pretty much describes the modern American male, um, you know, shortened lifespan. I, and they, they say, well, we have a long, long lifespans. Well, uh, most, the vast majority of the increase in lifespan is, uh, the great advancements that we've seen in the last couple hundred years in, um, uh, in birth, you know, uh, 100 years ago or, or even 150 years ago, um, the birth, uh, this, it, to have a successful birth was um, more the exception than the rule. And very, uh, there were very high rates of infant mortality. And then if a child could live to be about 10 or 12 years old, they were pretty lucky. Um, were, if you walk around old graveyards, you'll see a lot of graves of children. Um, so a lot of the higher life expectancy levels that we see now, especially in the West, are the information is tainted by the, uh, the, because the infant mortality rate is so much lower nowadays. So that gives us that, that tilts that, that, uh, uh, the numbers slightly. But now going back and thinking about uh, especially the modern American male and the kind of stress that, uh, that the modern American male has to face you know he's forced to cut his hair and and look pretty much pretty much like all the other males you're expected to keep your hair looking a certain way if you're going to be successful in business if you're going to be successful in sales if you're going to be successful in the public in any way you're as a male you're expected to cut your hair specific ways within a very small group of accept of acceptable haircuts and you definitely had better shave if you're not shaven if you're not completely clean shaven you'd better have um, basically a, a very controlled or sculpted um, facial hair. You better not just let your uh, facial hair, you know, grow to a terminal length. And you, and you certainly better not let your cranial hair grow to terminal length if you want to be successful in business. And you better dress like everybody else. You know, the American male, there's, uh, there's basically the business uniform, that all people in, in proper business, all men in proper business are supposed to wear, and it pretty much all looks the same. The same pants, the same business jacket, the same white shirt with a red tie. I mean, it's, it's just like a uniform. And then if you're a worker male, uh, American working male, then again, there's a specific uniform that you expect to wear. Uh, if you're going to be an outdoor worker, you know, you're going to – there's this specific way that you're expected to dress yourself. And if you're not, you're going to face uh, problems with your employer or with the public or with, you know, whoever you're trying to sell your goods to or whatever. And the American male is expected to commute to work. Uh, you're not expected to risk – to go out there and risk yourself by starting your own business. Um, that's that's very much discouraged. Both, you know, the government uh, with layers and layers and layers of bureaucracy and all of the the permits that are required and everything. There are um, there are all these discouragements for Americans to start their own business. But the American male specifically is pushed to either have a weekend hobby um, to keep his mind busy, to keep him from thinking about the mess that his life is in, or else he's expected to follow sports. Um, and sports are used as sort of the drug to keep the modern American male from thinking about how horrible his life really is and how much stress that he faces on a day-to-day basis. And if, uh, uh, you, know, if you don't have some kind of a weekend hobby or if you don't follow sports or whatever, you're kind of looked at as a little bit freakish. Um, so there's, there's peer pressure to push you towards those things in the, for the modern American male. Um, you're expected to never question authority. Uh, you're expected to just lower your head and keep mowing your lawn over and over and over. Make sure, you know, do any kind of brainless activity like that that will keep you from thinking about the mess that your life is in. Most most American jobs, um, they, they take about the same amount of brain power as mowing your lawn anyway um you you know the vast majority of bosses don't really want you to think they want you to obey they want you to push the button just push the button and just keep doing that sit in your cubicle and process these things you know um uh, get that paperwork filed uh or or whatever it is that's your particular job that's the standard thing that the standard boss doesn't want you to think he just wants you to do this task over and over and over and, and certainly don't give any kind of uh, negative feedback upwards that might cause uh, your boss to have to face something that he doesn't want to have to face. So we look at this again and we say that it's not that hard to see that sometimes what appears to be natural or what appears to be, you know, the nature of an animal is actually learned behavior. It's, a, it's a adaptation. So then we have to figure out a way to unlearn this if we're going to see the true nature of the animal. And of course, like I'm saying here, living in a hierarchy is unnatural for humans. So what's it going to take to break this pattern? What's it going to take to to get us free, like that baboon troop? What's it going to take to get us free of this this process? Well, here's a quick thought for you, Um, and I'm just going to run through this kind of quickly. Um, is it possible that the story, the biblical story of Egypt and Israel is a pattern for us to learn from? Let me run through this uh, a sort of a real quick overview of the Egypt and Israel story in the Bible. Uh, you've got to start, you the, the story starts out with um, this guy named Joseph. And through a long series of circumstances, he ends up leaving his homeland in uh, essentially in Israel, and he's held in captivity, and he's taken to Egypt, where he's very successful because he's a smart guy. He's very successful. He gets in charge of a lot of the government. He actually becomes like the top advisor, or the sort of like the Secretary of State, or whatever, to um, to the Pharaoh of Egypt. And through this, he's able to make a way where he can bring his entire family to Egypt. Where they uh, are going to have life pretty good. And one of the things that Joseph does in Egypt is he introduces taxation, um, probably in the range of about 20% taxation that Joseph had introduced to Egypt. And so um, you would think, well, how could a person just drop a 20% tax on people that were not taxed prior to that? Uh, and the, the answer is, of course, he used violence. Um, now, because how else could he? I mean, you think about it, how else could it have taken place? And so there's actually evidence that supports the idea that these Israelite men who Joseph brought into the country, his, his countrymen, his relatives, and there was a lot of them. And, and they all, you know, it wasn't just direct line brothers and sisters and this kind of thing. It was a pretty good uh, quantity of, uh, of people. And, uh, and all of their servants and so forth. And you can see that if you read about how many people were in the company of Abraham some generations prior to that. This, this was not a small group of people that came into Egypt that Joseph brought into Egypt. So there's actually indications, and people have done studies on this, that there's indications that Joseph brought in these Israelite men because they were mercenaries. And he brought them in literally as a, uh, to support the infantry, of Egypt, and also to work as palace guards, and possibly to enforce this new twenty percent tax that Joseph had dumped on the uh, on the farmers of Egypt. But one way or the other, the Israelites were slowly baited into accepting a taxation on themselves. The longer they stayed in Egypt, which, uh, according to the biblical story, they were there about five hundred years. So over that course of that five hundred years, they slowly adapted, and they slowly began. Accepting taxation upon the uh, the Israelite people, and uh, eventually this came to the point of where the the Bible refers to it as slavery. But that's uh, it's a play of words in there, really. If you get into the the, the broader meaning, it, it's not we're not talking about chattel slavery. This is not you know like a Hollywood production of of the Ten Commandments or whatever, where the, where where the Israelites are just, you know, dog slaves. They're just beaten and they're just, you know, that's not what is portrayed in, in the actual biblical story. They were not chattel slavery. They was tax slavery. They were there under the burden of taxation. And that burden kept increasing and increasing until it got to the point of where they couldn't tolerate it anymore. Well, what did it take to get them out of Egypt? It took a horrible plague. It took a decapitation of of an entire society. It took the death of all the eldest of, uh, of, of of the whole society. And and there's different ways to look at this story. One of the possible ways that this took place, um, whether it was by disease or whether it was... You know, one theory is... Um, uh, well, I don't have time to get into that right now. I'm running out of time on this. But one way or the other, there was a decapitation of, uh, of all the Egyptian society. And the only people who uh, were, a, were, were spared with this were the people who spent the night standing up in their houses. Um, it, that was part of Passover. Uh, everybody in the household had to stand up and eat standing up and eat with all your garments on and like you were getting ready to leave at any moment. That was part of the process. That's how you ended up uh, surviving through this horrible um, uh, decapitation of society. And so then they fled. Uh, they once that took place, then they left Egypt. And, but they weren't able to go immediately to their homeland. They had to wander around in the Sinai Desert for 40 years. And the Bible specifically says that that was for the purpose of allowing an entire generation to grow up with no memory of being under the heel of Egypt. A whole generation had to grow up without a memory of being under the foot of a government. And once that took place, then they went into their homeland and they spent the next 500 years as an anarchical culture with, uh, with no government in an entirely voluntary society. And they had rules. There was a priesthood and they, and they had rules, but these rules were all voluntary and then their entire society was voluntary. And that continued for 500 years until, uh, until the way the Bible says it is that the people rejected God. And demanded a king, um, and that's a really interesting thought. That once the decapitation of the of the hierarchy takes place, and then you exit for one full generation away from the influence, uh, away from that belief in the magical state, then uh, uh, then you then they were able to have five hundred years of anarchical society. And let's go back to that word hierarchy just. One last glance. Here's a thought. You know, I said that uh, the word hierarchy um, comes from that word heroes, the Greek word heroes, which literally means the heavenlies, uh, the realm of God. So when we talk about, and this came, uh, the, the first time that this word was used, the word hierarchy, the first time it was used was in the 13th century, and it was used to justify the structure of the church with uh, you know lower ranking priests and so forth, and then higher ranking uh, bishops and then archbishops and then the pope, and then God. you see this was the word hierarchy was invented to describe the structure of the church, and so now we think about hierarchy and we think about government um, Government has replaced the the church in that sense. We think about government as a hierarchy. But all the government, just like the church, and just like the church in the 13th century, is levels and levels and levels of bureaucrats until eventually you get up there, just like with the Pope in the 13th century, eventually you get to a level in government where there's a head of state. That might be a person or it might be a committee or whatever. But that's not God. That's not the heroes. That's, that's not the realm of God. Um, the realm of God... In this setting, with a hierarchy thinking of government, the realm of God is that belief in the state. And that's again going to the difference between government and state. Government being all these levels of the hierarchy, all these bureaucrats and all different levels, including the heads of state the so-called heads of state, the whether you're talking about some kind of a committee or whether you're talking about a president or a speaker of a house or, or a parliamentary speaker or whatever, whatever the head of state is or a monarch or whatever. But that's, um, that's comparable to the Pope in the 13th century description of hierarchy. But you still have to have that heavenly realm in order for it to be a hierarchy. And with, uh, with government as the hierarchy... The heavenly realm is that superstition, that belief in the state is as its godly position. And is all law coming from that hierarchy, coming down to to the rest of us, rather than law being a natural thing that we understand among ourselves. Folks, I want to thank you for listening today. And remember to visit badquaker.com, where liberty is our mission. Thanks a lot, folks.